Thank you, men. If you take your Bible, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 27. We are getting close to the end of this book, Acts chapter 27. You know, just when you thought, as we read through this book, just when you thought things couldn't get more interesting for the Apostle Paul, we have him uh, at the beginning of his ministry being rescued by being let down by a basket over a wall. We have him rejected and persecuted by religious leaders. He's a victim of a mob. He's almost killed. He's stoned to death, almost to death. He's unjustly accused of all kinds of behavior. And he details these hardships in 2 Corinthians, as we read uh, this morning. And then we've just come through his trials. Paul has stood trial before Festus. He stood trial before Agrippa, and now he's appealed to Caesar, and so he's on his way to Caesar. And, uh, you know, I, I, I titled the message here, At the Mercy of the Wind. And, and we find here in this story of shipwreck, Paul finds himself out of con- in a situation where he has very little to say, very little control over what's going on. And I think our culture today, as I think about where we are as a people, as we think about our cultural mindset, we struggle with this issue of when things are out of our control. We, we like to have things under control. I think this is a lot of because we have built up for ourselves a false sense of control. We believe that we have control over things in our life. Uh, we look at the, the app on our phone, and it says it's going to rain tomorrow, so we make plans. And then it doesn't do what the app says, and we get a little bit upset. I still remember years ago, I was a youth pastor here at Harvest, and we had our big youth event called Alcatraz. It's still one of our big youth events of the year, and I was so excited about Alcatraz um, and everything. And, but the problem with Alcatraz is you're using all your indoor facilities here to make a maze, and so the outdoor was very important. And, and then, you, would you know, we started, we had like 100 kids, almost 80, 80 kids here or something like that, and all of a sudden, we had a hailstorm. A hailstorm hit us, and we're looking around like, what is going on? It was, it was so bad. We walked out after the hailstorm, and you could smell the, the trees had been just broken apart. And you could smell the cedar, really, and the pine and all the smell. It was that of a, a violent of a storm. And so we had this big storm whip up, and I thought to myself, all this planning, and, and this is what happens. Well, I, was, I realized that there's nothing I could have done about this. I started you know, uh, thinking to myself, what could I have done differently? There's nothing I could have done differently. I mean, this is, it, 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 it rained. It had hail. I, what can you say? Uh, but in our cultural mindset, because we're used to having little computers in our pocket that do exactly what we tell them to do, we have rooms like this that are temperature controlled. You know, if it gets a little bit too warm, we say, somebody change the thermostat. You know, somebody quickly jump up and change the thermostat. If, if, if the music, we, we don't like the music, we hit skip on our phone and it goes to the next song. The things we watch on TV, we are, we are at control. We can sit down and we can choose from 30 million different TV channels all at one time. Some of you old-timers are like, I remember when there were three channels and none of them came in well. I know. I've heard the stories, right? <laughs> but but somebody said, amen. Okay, I won't go there. <laughs> but we're used to having a lot of control. And so previous culture stars, think about it. You know, you could ride a horse, but the horse might have a little mind of its own. He might decide to wander over here a little bit. You got to do your job. But like cars generally respond how we'd want them to. Our phones take just a little bit longer to look up that data and we start hitting them like that'll help somehow. We, we, we do all these things and we assume we have a level of control, but this has not changed the reality of the world outside of us that there are things completely beyond our control. There are things completely outside of our control, completely outside of our agency, but they're not outside the control and agency of God. That's the key. 
that, that they're outside of our control. And when things like this happen to us, when agency is taken away from us, when we feel like the world is happening to us, when we feel like things are happening to us, we feel boxed in, we feel endangered by the decisions of other people, we may start questioning whether these things really are working together for good. We may say, well, well this, is, this is so-and-so's doing. How do you learn to trust the Lord when decision-making power is taken out of your hands? You can learn to trust a living God when decision-making power is out of your hands and when you find yourself at the mercy of the wind. We're going to look at the passage today and see how God works in Paul's life. Let's pray first. Lord, we ask you today to work in our lives, to open up our hearts, that we would be willing to trust you even when things seem beyond your control. We know they're not when they're out of our control, out of our hands. We find ourselves tossed around, Lord, I pray that we would trust you and love you. And I know there are folks here this morning who have faced incredible difficulties, even just this past week. We've seen people who struggle and who've had hardship hit them, and they are spinning. Uh, They lose track of days. They lose track of time. And they wonder if you're really there. They can't see around them. Father, I pray you give mercy and grace to those folks today. They would recognize what you're doing and they see themselves in the passage this morning. We pray you give us hope through Jesus Christ, who forgives our sins, who makes us right with you. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a first-century traveler on the open seas. What kind of travel would have been very different than it is today? I mean, think about the navigation by the stars uh, rather than navigation by Garmin. Think about the fact that when the clouds cover the sky and the storms beat the ship, you lose sight of where you are. And in this story, Paul Paul will find himself completely at the mercy of bad decisions at the end of human effort and in the protective hands of God. Let's look first at this first uh, part of our story where Paul finds himself at the mercy of bad decisions. He first sees himself and difficulties beyond human control. Some challenges we face are not necessarily the result of bad decisions. They are difficulties beyond human beings' ability to control them. They are under the providential hand of God for a purpose. We see this at the beginning of verse 1, Acts chapter 27. It says, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, or sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. Julius actually becomes an important person in this story. And once again, Luke, the writer of Acts and the Gospel of Luke, has joined Paul in this moment. We see that as one of the we passages of Scripture. You see how he says, and we there. We did this. We gathered together. We should sail to Italy. Paul and Luke are companions at this point. They're together. So this becomes important later on in the story as Luke is writing out the details of the shipwreck. He describes these things with vivid detail because he remembers them happening to him. They're from Caesarea. They were in Caesarea, and now they are, they are headed, uh, they're headed out. They're going to go to Rome, and they have to find a port first. So I, I, I did some maps for you today, and I know these maps aren't the easiest to see, but if you look in your Bible, the first thing you'll know, or you look at the map here, you'll notice that Caesarea is, is, is on, the, on the bottom arrow there. That's where they were. That They go up the coast. They're going to go up the coast there to Sidon, where they're going to find a ship. And in verse 2, it says, so entering the ship of Andromedium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coasts of Asia. And though Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us, they used this lightweight vessel to coast close to shore as they moved from port 
to port. And it's, it's in my opinion, I think a lot of uh, commentators agree with me, the Aristarchus and Luke and others there, probably even Titus, are accompanying Paul. And some believe they're acting like Paul's servants or Paul's slaves in order to get passage with them. They've already met Aristarchus back in Acts 19, Acts chapter 20. And, and, and he's one of Paul's travel companions, one of his fellow servants. Look at verse 3. He says, the next day we landed at Sidon. That's uh, Tyre and Sidon of the Old Testament. That's Sidon right there in Phoenicia on the, on the top uh, arrow there. We entered a Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly, gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. Like Joseph in the Old Testament, Paul finds himself as a prisoner, yet he has freedom. He can do what he needs to do. In fact, it's interesting to me that, that here Paul is given liberty to meet people, and knowing Paul, he ministered this entire time. But there's an interesting phrase there, received care, which may mean that Paul was sick or Paul was not feeling well, or Paul was not at his best physically. And it's very possible he needed care from a doctor like Luke, care from someone else to, to, to help him along this, this path. He needed care. His health, we know, was a regular issue, and here it shows up. But look at verse 4. We see some contrary winds. We have hints that things are not going well in verse 4. It says, when we put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus. You see Cyprus as an island right to the top here, to the north on this map. He says, we sailed... Um, uh, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary, meaning the winds were not helping them out. When we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. And there a centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy and put us on board. Here is the route they were at the bottom. You'll notice on the far right-hand side of my picture here, Sidon. They come under Cyprus. They struggle with their boat, and they finally make it all the way up to Asia Minor there in Myra. They're on their way to Rome. They have to find a big enough port that has a ship going to Rome. Now, here's the thing. Back then, they didn't exactly have ships like, like we have airplanes today. If you get on an airplane, you're with a bunch of other passengers. And this day, you had to get on basically what was a cargo ship. You went along with whatever was going to Rome. And in this case, this ship was probably they're going to get on in a minute. It was a wheat ship. was carrying wheat from the area of Asia Minor. was probably carrying it all the way to Rome to sell. But the winds are not helping out. Verse 4 says the winds are contrary. And like my experience with the weather, and like you weathermen know, there's nothing you can do about the weather. There's nothing you can do about the wind. You have to deal with what you're given. But they finally make it there, and they try to get on a ship to go to Italy. Verse 7, when we had sailed slowly many days, again, more trouble, and arrived with difficulty off Cnidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmoni. And passing on with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lazia. Now, let me show you one more map here where they went. They went from this place, Myra. They went down and found their way all the way to Fair Havens, which was in Crete. They are making their way west towards Italy. But this slowed them down. They had tremendous difficulty. Over and over again, we see things that are outside human control, outside human ability, constantly slowing them down. And it's actually possible that this is the place when Paul lands in Crete here, where he drops Titus off to minister to the churches there in Crete. Paul mentions uh, dropping off Titus in Crete or leaving him there in the book of Titus. And this is the only recorded time we have of Paul visiting in the island of Crete. So this is maybe there was a time there at Fair Havens. They made a short stop. Paul met some believers there and left Titus with them. Some of the difficulties they faced obviously were beyond human control, but some of the difficulties we face are directly under the control of other people. And this is where people begin to struggle. In fact, if you look with me at the next passage, we're dealing with difficulties under human control. Because in verse 9, if you'll read with me, Paul has a concern. He says, now when the much time had been spent, 
And sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over. He gives us a time frame here. He says we're getting close to the winter season, and the Mediterranean Sea was known to be very tumultuous as the weather got colder. Paul advised them, verse 10, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo, but also our lives. The ship has taken far too long. And so his advice is based on the experience of several other shipwrecks and lots of travel is that his trip will end in disaster. Notice here, Paul is speaking as a friend, not a prophet. He says, this is my perception. I believe this is the case. He doesn't say, thus says the Lord. He says, I'm concerned. As an experienced traveler, as an experienced man on a ship, I think this is a bad idea, but the people in the ship disregard him. And I think you've been in situations like this where you had red flags, you're waving red flags, saying, whoa, 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 something's wrong here, and the people in charge went anyway. That's exactly what happens if you keep reading with me, because there's a centurion who's the military official who has the authority to make the decision, but there's a helmsman who is the shipmaster, and then there's the owner of the ship. Now, the owner of the ship would employ the shipmaster to employ the crew, and so the helmsman or the shipmaster and the ship owner, the ship owner wants to get his wheat to Rome so he can sell it. The shipmaster wants to get to where he's going so he can make a profit. And the centurion is, is, is persuaded by these two. And so what they decide to do is they decide to go up, the, up the, um, the, the coast just a little ways to another place. Look at verse 11. It says, nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than the things spoken by Paul. And he advised to set sail from there also. I'm sorry, because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest in winter there. So all they're asking to do is, can we go up the coast a little ways and get to a better harbor? Where we are now is not suitable to winter. We need to get further up the coast. Let me show you a map. This is not a long journey. They want to go from this first uh, arrow where Fairhavens is up to the second arrow where we see Phoenix. You see, Paul here, although he's warning them, do not go. They do not listen to him. And we find ourselves soon at the end of human effort. This is getting ready to go into severe tragedy. Look at verse 13, because the decisions they had made to this point set them in a place that caused great trial. Look at verse 13. We'll see the disappearing hope for the, for the trip. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. They were hoping to stay close to land. It seemed like something they could easily do. Verse 14, but not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose, call it a nor'easter. And when the ship was caught, they could not head into the wind. We let her drive. They lose control of this boat. The tempest takes over the ship. The ship was caught in the storm, and they could not go into the wind. The wind was opposite them. And so it says here, they let the ship drive. That means they gave control over. They stopped trying to control the ship, and they let it be tossed by the wind. Now, how many of you have been on a ship when there was a storm? I know I have, except my ship was a gigantic cruise ship. Now, a gigantic cruise ship on a storm really isn't that bad, but when you get a little boat like this, it's going up and down and spinning around and getting out of control very fast. Very, very big trouble. 
They make efforts in verse 16 to secure this ship. Look at verse 16. Running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. So here's where they are. They were in fair havens, and they're pushed off to this little island called Clauda. Let me explain one more thing. I had, I had, in fact, let me just stop here for a moment. Pause. I had a lot of fun studying nautical stuff this week. Let me just say that. I did a lot of reading on, on uh, nautical ship things, and it's fascinating what they would do. What often these ships would do is they would have a skiff, or what people call a dinghy, which would fall off the back of the boat. It was almost like a lifeboat or like an easy transport boat, and it was the size that could hold just a few men, and it would float behind the main boat attached by a rope, uh, a short rope. And they would, they would uh, if they needed to go get something or they needed someone, they'd let them down into the skiff, they would take the skiff in and then bring it back, or they would communicate between ships that way. That was how the big boat would ferry small people or small boats, uh, small groups of people off. But the problem was the storm had come so fast. Normally, when a storm was coming, they would pull in the rope of the skiff and, and load it onto the boat so it wouldn't get filled with water and drag the boat down. But the storm had happened so fast that the water of, from the storm had begun to fill the skiff, and so they had to get the skiff in or it was going to drag them under. It was going to create huge problems. So it says here, if you look at this passage, that they, they secured the skiff with great difficulty. In fact, if you notice, he says they didn't secure the skiff. Who secured the skiff? Look at verse 16. We secured the skiff. So Luke, the writer, is employed by the boatmaster to go out there and to drag this boat in. And everyone's involved dragging that boat by hand. One of the commentators I read said he probably remembered the blisters on his hand from this event as he's recalling this. Look at verse 17. And when they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. And fearing lest they should run aground on the Syrtis sands, they struck sail and were so driven. Archaeologists had discovered drawings of Egyptian boats about this same time frame that would use cabling, and they would use a cabling through the mast around the bottom of the boat in order to secure the boat and keep it from falling apart and to hold it together in storms. And they were worried about hitting sand near this, near this place called Claudus, so they set sail and they allowed the boat to go. To keep reading in verse 18, it says, because we were so exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. And the third day we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our, own, with our own hand. Hope begins to rapidly disappear as they lighten the ship. They start to toss things overboard that were weighing down the ship. Water was undoubtedly coming into the ship. Everyone was taking the tackle for the ship, the gear, the expensive, necessary gear, throwing it overboard. And finally, in verse 20, the hope of salvation is completely gone. We see this when neither the sun nor stars appear for many days and no small tempest beat on us. Notice this, all hope that we would be saved was finally given uh, they're caught in the darkness without the stars for navigation, without the sun for timekeeping. It seems like a never-ending spiral of disaster. All hope has been given up. But do you remember that God had given a promise to Paul? God had said, you will make it to Rome. So next, not only do we have disappearing hope, we have divine encouragement from Paul. Look at verse 21. Paul is proven correct earlier, and now he wants them to have a change of outlook. He says, after a long absence from food, Paul stood in the midst of them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Remember what Paul had said earlier? He said, there's going to be great loss of ship and our lives. But the Lord had given him encouragement. He had been proven correct, but not all the way correct. And that God's encouragement was that they would not lose any life. 
Yes, Paul would survive, but so would that. So would the people on the ship. They would lose a lot of things. Their, li- their possessions would be gone, but their lives would be spared. So God provided divine protection. Verse 23, there stood by me this night, Paul speaking, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Here's God's promise. If you are with Paul, you are safe. If you're on this boat, you are safe. God's promises are enough to build on. We should believe God. We should not be afraid because God's promises mean we can cast our fear aside when everything else is going poorly around us. We can face the tempest that has destroyed our human hopes if we trust in the Lord who has given us promises. Look at verse 25. He gives more encouragement. He says, therefore, take heart, O men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Take heart means have courage. He says, have courage. God will protect us. I believe God will follow through just as it was told me. Do you believe God in the storm you are facing? Do you believe God in the storm you are facing? Do you think about the promises God has given you in His Word? And do you say, I know it looks hopeless out there, but I know God is faithful. And he's made promises to me. So they make some dependency here, verse 27 through 33 or 32. Now, when the 14th night had come, two weeks, they are tossed around like this. As we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors sensed they were drawing near some land. We're told that the breakers, the, the, uh, the waves off of Malta can be heard a long ways out because of the way that the uh, the way that the, the, the land slopes away here in the river, so the, I mean, way there in the sea, the, it's a long slope, so the, the breakers can be heard from a far ways out. And so they, they probably heard this. This was still at night. They think they're close to land, so they start taking depth readings with their instruments. Verse 28, we took some soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. When we had gone further, we took soundings again and found it 15 fathoms, so they're getting closer to land. Verse 29, then fearing we should run aground on the rocks... They dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. They did not want to run aground in the dark, which is extremely dangerous. The danger was obvious to all the soldiers, I'm sorry, all the sailors who were on board. Look at verse 30. And the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship. When they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow. So here is what happens. The sailors realize the bad situation and they know they have this skiff that they have pulled in from the sea on the boat. They decide to let it out. And in letting it out, they're going to get on the skiff and they say, we have to go out and check on the anchors. And their goal was to get close enough to get far enough away from the boat. They could let go from the boat and they could get safely in and leave the people on the ship to die. It says here, if you keep watching or keep reading in verse 31, that Paul knows exactly what's going on. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And there's two things going on here, possibly. Paul, of course, had, had the promise from God that all those were saved who were in the ship. But we needed these sailors and we needed their expertise on what was getting ready to happen. If they left the ship, they would be abandoning their hope. Look what happens next, verse 32. And the soldiers, not the sailors, the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. There goes your transportation. It's gone. Your lifeboat, your skiff is gone. It's, it's away. You know, when we come to the end of our human efforts, which is what they had done, they had done everything they could under human efforts, we find the promises of God there. 
So many times we struggle and we strive and we want to do, we want to, we want to improve, we want to rescue ourselves. But you know, in Psalm 46, there's this wonderful phrase. The Bible says, be still and know that I am God. That word be still is a command that means stop striving. Cease striving and know that I am God. So many people who are trying to rescue themselves need to recognize that you need to come to the end of your human effort. Cease striving and know that I am God. We can trust the Lord who calms the wind and the waves because nothing is beyond his control. We can trust the Lord Jesus Christ because he says that when we are weak, he is strong. When I'm helpless, he is shown to be mighty. We should believe God and take heart. Lastly, we see a moment of devotion. As the day was about to dawn, Paul implored them to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day. You have waited and continued without food, eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you, take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. They were discouraged. And Paul tells them, you need to eat for your survival. Those who give up hope do not eat. Why would you eat if you're going to just die? Paul says, you're going to need this. Eat now, because we're going to survive. And they believe him. Look at verse 35. When they had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. How much courage would it have taken to give thanks to God in the middle of a storm? Lord, we thank you for this food. I, I, I do not know what the faces were like of the people who listened to his prayer, but I can imagine they were a little bit like, are you serious? You're giving thanks in this? We look like we're going to die? You're giving thanks? And when he had broken it, he began to eat. But verse 36 says, then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. Paul sets the example, and he breaks and gives to them. And in all, Luke numbers the people. There were 276 persons on the ship. He goes through and makes sure he knows how many, because God had promised that not a single hair would fall, not a single person would die. And so Luke's going to make sure that God keeps his end of the deal, so to speak. He's going to verify God's promises. Verse 38, and so when they'd eaten enough, they lightened the ship, threw out the wheat into the sea. It's a time of thanksgiving and trust. You might even say devotion here that the people are counted. God knows each person after eating. They throw the wheat into the sea. They, they know that the physical reason their ship was there is lost. They no longer have the wheat. They were going to carry the Rome. Now all they have are people. When you come into the end of human effort, finally you find yourselves in the hands of the living God because Paul had found himself lost at sea due to the consequences at the mercy of bad decisions from other people, and there was nothing left for them to do. God had promised they would be rescued and their lives would be preserved. So we see it happen. First, the ship is lost. Look at verse 39. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach on which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go of the anchors and left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosed the runner ropes and they hoisted the mainsail for the wind and made for shore. Several details here I want to point out. They, they wrote, recognize a sandy beach, which we actually see today in Malta. They call it St. Paul's Beach or St. Paul's Bay. You can go visit there if you are so inclined to visit our missionaries, the Tanises, who serve in Malta. There is St. Paul's Bay. is not the place where you would typically launch or land a boat. Typically, you go to one of the ports, but there is a bay there, and it's just like it's described here, a sandy beach. And they look at they say, we can go there, we can run the ship onto the sandy beach and be generally pretty safe by doing so. So what do they do? It says they cut 
the ropes for the uh, anchors. They had dropped the anchors to steady the ship. Now they cut them and they let go. And they also hoist the sail. They want to go uh, fast towards the water or towards the land as fast as possible. And they loose the rudder ropes. What happens here is during a storm off and the rudders, which are usually two paddles of wood that are stuck at the back of the boat, they are raised from the boat and wrapped with ropes to keep them from getting destroyed in the middle of being tossed and driven by the sea. So they lower the rudders back into the water by loosening the rudder ropes. They steer themselves towards this land, which they do not know what it is, and they go towards the shore. But there's a problem. All does not go as planned. Look at verse 41. And they strike the place where the two seas met. They ran the ship aground. It's a little bit unclear uh, unless you read it in the original what's going on here. There is a sandbar. There is some sort of uh, a sandbar before they could reach the actual uh, land. They actually hit the ground early and they ran the ship aground and the prow struck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the wave. They hit the sandbar and the boat is stuck And from behind, the waves are crashing into the back of the boat, breaking the boat up from behind, pounding and breaking the boat. The ship is completely destroyed and completely lost. But the people are saved. The people are saved. Look with me in verse 42, because remember what God had promised Paul, that no life would be lost. Every person would be counted. Everybody matters to God. Verse 42, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. This was understandable. At the time, you were accountable for all the prisoners. And if the prisoners escaped, you would die. So they thought to themselves, well, if we kill them, well, at least uh, they won't escape. I'll have, a, I'll have an accounting for them. But the centurion, it says, verse 43, wanting to save Paul, kept them for a purpose and commanded that those should swim, should jump overboard first and get to land. They are still a ways away from the land. And the rest, the ones who could not swim, some on boards and some on parts of the ship, got to land, and so it was. They all noticed this, and I circled it in my Bible, put exclamation point. They all escaped safely to land. Look at where they ended up. They started here. You can see on the right-hand side, Crete, and they went out, and they ended up all the way on Malta, south of Italy. They were tossed for two whole weeks in the open sea, and they end up landing on this tiny little island called Malta. Now, when we take a step back and see this tremendous story of shipwreck and of disaster on the ocean. I have just a couple thoughts here. First, at the beginning of the sermon, I read a passage from 2 Corinthians 11 that said, in its conclusion, when I am weak, then I am strong. When I'm weak, God strengthens me. I think this can be applied to us today when we see ourselves at the mercy of the wind, our facade of control is stripped away. And when our control is stripped away, we're actually able to see God's hand at work in our lives. We keep our hand too tightly on the steering wheel. We don't see God at work as easily. In fact, it was to the church of Rome that Paul writes the following. Could you take your Bible and turn to the book of Romans, just one book over? Romans chapter 8, I want you to look at this passage with me. Paul's on his way to Rome, and he writes this passage to them. Paul, who was more, more than probably any of us, had experienced the peril of danger brought on by things completely outside of his control. He wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit the following text. Begin in verse 28. He says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God 
to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he called, and those he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who can condemn? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul on that ship being tossed and thrown around at the mercy of other people and at the mercy of the wind was convinced in his mind that nothing could separate him from the love of Christ. Do you have that conviction in your heart? That you find yourself, your life is upside down, your life is backwards, and you don't know which end is up, but nothing can separate you from the love of Christ if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ Jesus, our Lord, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And he lists there persecution, peril, difficulty, pressures, spiritual warfare, We can find ourselves as more than conquerors, not just conquerors, not just victors, more than victors. How can you be an over-conqueror? How can you be an over-victor? How can that be possible? It's not possible through your strength. It's possible through the strength given to you when you are weak, then you are strong. Because it is at our weakness when we find ourselves completely at a loss, we find ourselves tossed around at the mercy of the wind, that God's strength and God's power is at full display. Do you rest? knowing you are in the hands, in the arms of the living God. I wonder. So many of us, we go through difficulty, we go through physical trial. What do we ask God for? Think about it. What do you ask God for? Lord, just get me out of this. I don't like this, God. I don't like this trial. I don't like this circumstance. I'm not asking you to say, Lord, bring on the trials. I'm not saying that. Then nobody, nobody says that. But as the trials come, do you say, Lord, why did you make me go with that idiot who made these stupid decisions. And now I find myself in a terrible circumstance. And I didn't do anything wrong. Paul found himself in that same situation. He begged them. He said, guys, we shouldn't be doing this. They went anyway. They find themselves at the end of human effort. They tried everything they knew how to do. They they had lightened the ship. They had bound the ropes. They had brought in the skiff. They had cut the anchor. They had done everything they could to try to stabilize that boat, and it still wrecked, and they still lost everything, but they did not lose their lives because God's promises are sure. And friend, we can trust in the promises of God. They are sure, and they they are always true. I just encourage you, as Paul said, believe in God and take heart. Believe in God and take heart. When you find yourself tossed around, I know there are people in here like that. 
We've, we've prayed, we've cried with some of y'all before through difficulties where you're like, man, like it, it's, it's, I, I'm at the end of my rope. I don't know what to do next. Believe in God and take heart. God's not done with you yet because He's done with you. You'll know because you'll be with Him. But for right now, He's not done with you. He has a plan for you. He has a purpose for you. He has things for you to do, places for you to go, people for you to talk to. He's got a plan for you. Believe in God and take heart. Don't be discouraged. Don't get upset. We are all at the mercy of the wind every day, aren't we? We're all a circumstance of other people's bad decisions, often. You look at your bank account and you say, thanks a lot, government. (laughs) At the mercy of other people's decisions. Believe in God and take heart. He who clothes the lilies of the field, will he not also clothe you, O you of little faith? You wives out there who say, my husband is absolutely crazy. And I'm supposed to follow him, and I'm supposed to honor him, and I'm supposed to, to, to submit to him? Believe God and take heart. We find ourselves in different circumstances all the time, but God leads us every step of the way. And I just want to encourage you folks today. I don't know where you are. I think some, some of you identify with this. Some of you are getting ready to head into that storm. Some of you are just coming out of it. Wherever you find yourself in this storm, I beg of you, trust in the hands of the living God because he holds you faster and harder than you can hold yourself. He loves you and cares for you more than you could possibly imagine, and he will not let go. Father, we ask today that you would help us to lean and trust in you. So many of us, when we find ourselves at the mercy of these unpredictable things, now, we, we back away from trusting you. We lean on trusting ourselves, and we get frustrated and anxious and full of fear. Uh, today, Lord, I pray that you would help us to strive, to see striving and know that you are God, that we would love you and know you, that we would believe you and take heart, take courage, and go boldly. And Lord, knowing that you have a plan, you have a purpose, and your love for us is unchanging that height nor depth nor anything else can separate us from the love of Christ, love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Lord, if we are in you, we cannot be separated from you. We thank you for that promise. I pray for the folks here this morning. Lord, a lot of us are facing things that are difficult. I pray that you'd help us to be led by you, to follow you like sheep with our shepherd, knowing that you love us and care for us even if we face something tremendously difficult like this. And Lord, I pray for those who are not yet sheep of your sheepfold, who have not yet trusted you as Savior, who are believing in their own righteousness, their own works, or their own good things to get them to heaven and to have a right relationship with you. Lord, humble them today. May they trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that resurrected Lord who says, believe in me, Lord, may they trust in him alone and forsake their own righteousnesses. Father, be with us now as we close this service. I pray that our hearts would come to you, be receptive to you working, and that we would respond rightly now in this service to the word as it's been spoken.